meet here every uh, Thursday, almost year-round, but not quite here. Welcome. I would like you to be sure that you've turned off your cell phone um, if you haven't already done so. That would be uh, very important. My name's Austin Fennell. I'll be your moderator today. And I want you to know that the program and the speech is addressed is available on SACPA's website, and as well, Shaw TV Spotlight records the presentations and uses excerpts from the PowerPoint if that's appropriate. The cost of the meal is $14. If you will put that in the little bowl that's on your table, and if somebody at the table would be willing to count that up to see if it's correct, so when they come to collect it, that would be a helpful thing. If you're here only for coffee, uh, it's substantially reduced. It's only two dollars. Okay. Now the format for the meeting is that we will hear our presenter. Uh, he'll be about a half hour, and uh, and then uh, we will have lunch, and then uh, come back here, and that will be the question period following that. Um, there'll be about a 25-30 minutes presentation. And our uh, guest speaker today is Larry Elford. Uh, Larry is an investment industry analyst. That's his occupation. He has worked inside the investment industry from 84 to 2004. And he has um, presented and uh, been an expert at parliamentary committees on finance, justice, and human rights. This year, he has published a nonfiction book about your financial murder which describes the hidden financial industry practices which serve to unjustly enrich corporations. Now the title of his talk is Money, Power, and Poverty. What harms are done by those at the top of society versus those at the bottom? Will you please welcome Larry. Thank you very much for that introduction. And for SACPA for having me here yet again. I, I love speaking to this audience. Um, I'll get right started. I believe I found a secret financial sinkhole in Canada. And I believe it's connected to some of the greatest social problems that we see every day in our streets. And, and these days we're seeing them in our newspapers as well. I would like to share with you, and then I hope you'll ask me questions at the end, which will help me even better understand what I'm talking about, because I haven't got this thing figured out all the way. This image is from a 2016 article in the Harvard Gazette titled, The Costs of Inequality. I chose this image to try and visually connect the giant sinkhole that I showed at the outset to the, which represents a giant hidden drain on our society into which some of the fairness and the prosperity of our society disappears, never to be seen again. Except that I can show you where the money is seen again. This illustration conveys how unfairness allows prosperity to be directly infused into the financial health of certain companies, certain individuals, well-organized companies, who work in concert with professionals to make sure the distribution of the nation's wealth falls into these drains is done unfairly and is done in secret. The system mechanics of how much of society's wealth gets transferred away from the public into giant corporations and those who serve those corporations is a multi-dimensional maze of financial, legal, regulatory, justice, and political systems all working together, synchronized together perfectly 
to ensure that a portion of society is above our laws and out of reach of prosecution. They can unjustly enrich themselves at the expense of the rest of society, and the systemic unfairness of this causes dis-ease in our society. And I also mention again, it's a very well-kept secret. In my view, images like this are a huge problem, yes, but they are not the problem. I would like to talk about whether they are the symptom or whether they are the disease. My friend Frank Toth would point out that this may be the canary in the coal mine that we're seeing and that we should notice it, take, it, take notice as a warning. For example, no one in this room knows whether this image is from Sudan, Syria, Pakistan, or Lethbridge, Alberta. And it would be easy for us to spot it as a symptom of a disease if it were those other countries. But what if it were here, in Lethbridge? What if it were Alberta, Canada? Would we recognize it as a symptom of a disease? Or would we focus on it as if it were the biggest problem in our lives, the biggest problem in our news media, the biggest problem for our police? I believe it is a symptom, and I'd like to give you a glimpse into what I feel to be the actual disease or the problem. So consider crime to be on a spectrum from one end to the other of stuff that's very visible, crimes and abuses that we point at, we look at, we focus on, and an invisible area at the other end of the spectrum. I'm going to take you to, well, let's see, next slide. I've learned that the secret power of powerful abusers is in their ability to keep their abuses a secret. If you think about that, any form of abuse that we've seen throughout history has always been perpetuated by its ability to be kept secret. It's almost magic to watch how well this works. So in order for me to show you the other end of the spectrum, in order to get a glimpse, and we'll just get a glimpse of the disease I'm talking about, rather than the symptoms, I have to take you somewhere far away where they are far ahead of where we are in Canada. I'd like to give you a look of things that are not allowed to be seen here. They're still a very well-kept secret. I'm going to play you a two-minute video from the Australia Broadcasting Corporation of what is happening in that country this is probably a week old, possibly two weeks old. Banks and finance companies have put profits before people and being motivated by greed. The Royal Commission made this blunt finding today as it released a damning initial report into misconduct and poor behaviour. Commissioner Campaign found that much of the conduct broke existing laws and yet there have rarely been prosecutions, but he hasn't yet made any recommendations. This report from economics correspondent Stephen Long delivered to the Governor-General a document that slams the banks and regulators. A thousand pages detailing how the financial system and those who oversee it have failed the nation. A frank and scathing assessment of the culture, conduct and compliance of our financial system. The culture exposed in the hearings that saw the dead charge money for financial advice and the most vulnerable people conned and ripped off in the pursuit of sales. Make no mistake, today is a day of shame for Australia's banks. How did it happen? The Commissioner says, too often the answer seems to be greed, the pursuit of short-term profits at the expense of basic standards of honesty. Kenneth Haynes' report is withering about the conduct of a corporate cop that preferred to do deals with offenders rather than prosecute them. It says, 
When misconduct was revealed, it either went unpunished or the consequences did not meet the seriousness of what had been done. Good boy. Natasha Keys is among the thousands aggrieved by the banks. I'll stop there and jump back to the presentation. That is what's happening in Australia at the moment, and here's what's happening in Canada. It is in 2017, I was lucky enough to work with CBC to reveal that over 96% of investment salespersons in Canada are falsely representing their licenses to the public, to you people. They're representing themselves as if they were licensed as professional financial advisors, and we found that that isn't true. So imagine for a moment how many investors in this city are paying advisor account fees for a person who does not even have an advisor license. I can tell you it's almost 100%. <clears throat> Now imagine how much that costs. And my truck driver friend in Coldale said to me after I wrote my book about your financial murder and how a false advisor will usually cost you about 2% more, and 2% more on your investment fees will cut the average person's retirement in half when compounded over their lifetime. He said, Larry, that's the best case scenario, is that your retirement will be cut in half with a falsified advisor, and the bank will have the other half. The worst case scenario is much worse, and there are stories in this room that have already been approached by people of how their experience has been much worse, worse than simply being cut in half. I was also invited to testify to a parliamentary finance committee, and during that testimony, I was asked about the role of our Canadian banking ombudsman, and the hair on the back of my neck stood up, and I didn't know why. I got emotional. <laughs> I couldn't understand it until later. I recall that in 2012, the Canadian banking ombudsman had been strictly forbidden, had been cut off at the knees from investigating anything of a systemic nature in Canada. What that means, that means if a bank or a financial institution hurts one person in this room, the banking ombudsman can investigate. But if they can push a button and hurt every person in this room, then the banking ombudsman cannot touch it. They were specifically prohibited from investigating matters of a systemic nature in 2012. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a sinkhole bigger than anything I can imagine. We're saying that we can abuse all people and it cannot be investigated by our own government agencies. That's a Canadian-style crime. I then recalled, when that came to mind, I recalled the Justice and Human Rights Committee that I testified in after the crash of 2008. It was the Harper government who was introducing a bill for white-collar crime to respond to the financial crash and the loss of millions and billions of dollars by fraudsters. When I dis what I got there when I discovered was that the white-collar crime bill for fraudsters had already been written in advance prior to anyone testifying, and Liberal MP Marlene Jennings from Quebec, shout out to the Liberals in the crowd, um, pointed out and questioned the committee as to how we could have this bill written in advance. It had reinforced jail terms for white collar fraud, so it met the publicity or the, the public profile of the bill, but it had specifically deleted all jail sentences for public market fraudsters, all bankers, all investment dealers, cut out, can't go to jail. Cannot jail a banker or a public market fraudster in Canada as a result of that bill. I remember the, uh, my wife and I, Penny, we were in testimony and the bells were ringing, Parliament was being prorogued, and everybody had to be, all the members of the committee had to rush out and race down the tunnel.
tile to the uh, center block and vote to uh, split up Harlem or, or cease Harlem for a while, Kurobe, whatever that is. Um, they came back, restarted the testimony, and I got to give my testimony twice. I still can barely remember it, but I did get to do it twice. Banks and public market fraudsters were literally granted do not go to jail cards by our government or by persons who wrote the bill for our government. And I hope some of you are starting to see a trend here that I, that I see. Closer to home, a retired police officer called me a month ago, not from this city. He was supposed to have retired with a guaranteed pension income of $3,500 per month. However, a commissioned sales agent at one of Canada's financial giants said, trust me, I am a financial advisor and I will do so much better with your money than that crappy pension you have. He told the police officer to transfer his pension away from the guaranteed and professionally fiduciary managed pension plan into the hands of a falsified advisor. The police officer now lives in his mother-in-law's home on approximately $1,100 per month and he's being, after being financially mugged by the investment industry. And that salesperson that did that to him and the investment firm both have a much better retirement lifestyle as a result. So when your investment advisor wants to talk, talk to you about retirement planning, you're supposed to ask, is that your retirement or mine? <laughs> this is the kind of fraud that happens to millions of Canadians because CBC News, of course, pointed out that 96% of financial advisors do not have an advisor license. You're being served up something while being promised something else, and that is the definition of fraud. And when that fraud cannot be enforced in Canada, we have yet another giant financial sinkhole, which, which all people's money goes into. This same police officer once raced to the scene when a bank was robbed and knows that people who fraudulently represent themselves as doctors or dentists, they face charges under our criminal codes. But for some reason, when a financial institution like a bank robs or defrauds the public, or even the police, there is no one to call. Systemic financial crimes or fraud is handled, quotes, internally by the financial system itself, or by people they pay to handle those things. And by handled, I do not mean solved and prosecuted. My wife said I couldn't use the quote, but the term of Ralph Klein of shoot, shut up, and shovel comes to mind in how financial matters are handled in Canada. Here in Lethbridge, we're seeing the signs of economic stress, which always first appears among the weakest members of any society. And because of hopelessness, unfairness, trauma, and a few other conditions, they've turned to an epidemic of drugs. This is from Lethbridge News Now, showing business owners desperate for more enforcement on drug users. I believe this is the cause of societies. I believe the financial element is the cause, not the, not the uh, symptom. And I believe we're looking at the symptom. I'm in constant contact with hundreds of people who are also in a state of hopelessness and despair over their finances. When laws are not applied to financial giants, there are tremendous economic imbalances, which causes pressure upon those least able to adjust to the lawlessness. At the extremes, they become hopeless and helpless. They suffer financial, physical, and mental health issues. Just turn on the news in any developed country to see this. The symptoms are everywhere, except the disease is still being kept a secret in developed countries. Australia is the only country in the world that I know of where they've actually started to speak about this. 
where they've actually had a commission of inquiry. This is a, uh, the CDC story in 2017 revealed that only 4,000 persons out of 120,000 in Canada held a proper license as a fiduciary advisor. You can't spot the misrepresentation or the enabling of fraud in this image, but to suffice it to say that this image from the BC Securities Commission, one of 13 provincial and territorial bodies who are paid completely by the investment industry, suffice it to say that over a quarter billion dollars is paid to just four of those 13 agencies. <coughs> four are paid over a quarter billion dollars. And they're paid that money by the financial industry to perpetuate the myth of the licensed financial advisor. I'll quote, ask your registered investment advisor about the fees and charges you pay. This is a government regulator not even willing to tell you, despite CBC News programming, that only 4% of Canadian people have a licensed financial advisor. They're keeping that under the table. Can you imagine how much money that makes for the financial industry? Another giant sinkhole. The Ontario Securities Commission um, has over 300 people who earn more than $100,000 on the Sunshine List of salaries, and over 100 people at that regulator earn more than the Premier of Ontario. So what we're talking about is we're not paying things to be regulated, we're paying for things to be handled. Jump forward to 2009, the Public Service Pension Plan of Canada, which is the pension plan for retired judges, RCMP, and a few others. They took a write-down of between one and two billion dollars. After being sold, non-lawful subprime mortgage investments, investments which did not meet rating requirements, did not meet our laws. So how did the industry sell them if they didn't meet our laws? They simply purchased something from the Securities Commission called an exemption to the law. There are thousands of exemption on exemptions on this commission record, and they allow hundreds of billions of dollars to be unjustly transferred from the pockets of mutual fund holders, bank investors, new issue people, people who are buying new public issues. This one cost $32 billion, one abuse, one crime. How much money could you make if you did not have to follow the laws? If you could go to the police and get an exemption from any law that you wish to, an exemption granted in secret, no public notice, no notice even to the people who were buying the investments. All other crime in Canada compared to that 32 billion is somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 billion to I've seen estimates as high as 80. So this one subprime mortgage scam which the city of Lethbridge lost 30 odd million dollars in, got some back, but lost a tremendous amount of money, uh, is e equivalent to between 40 to 60% of all the crime in the land. All the crime we can measure everywhere. One crime. One exemption to the law, signed by one, se one uh, Securities Commission member. Let's switch from crime for a second and let's talk about addiction which was the topic that prompted me to want to give this talk. We've seen so much about drug addiction in the news, but we haven't seen anything about another type of addiction called process addictions, which do not involve taking drugs. They can involve addictive processes. Processes like shopping, gambling, eating, social media, money making, doing deals. Those are all processes. 
They trigger the same dopamine rewards in the brain that our emergency room doctor talked about here during his drug crisis talk. They make the dopamine high every bit as real to the billionaire as drugs are to the drug addict. Why don't we talk about money and power addictions among those at the top of our society? Why don't, what if they, what if they were to do as much harm as all the street crimes in Milan? I can assure you that the billionaire who seeks to add another billion dollar to his net worth does not need the money, but he does need the dopamine. We all get our dopamine somehow. What if his addiction does not do harm to himself like the street addict, but what, what if it does harm to society invisibly, secretly? A billion dollar corporation plus a few assorted handmaids, lawyers, regulators, politicians, etc., can do billions worth of harm in one systemic crime. Whereas the average property crime in Canada is in the neighborhood of $5,000. What if one villainous character could do the financial harm of 50,000 property crimes and we will not talk about it? 50,000 property crimes is approximately the value of what Conrad Black's allegations were against him, where he was prosecuted, not in Canada, but in the United States. I'm going to quote now from Governor General David Dodge, former Bank of Canada Governor General, 2005, David Dodge, there is a perception in international financial circles that Canadian markets are the Wild West, and it hurts Canadian companies when they try to raise money abroad. This is a very common refrain that we hear when we visit markets in New York or Boston or London or Europe, a perception that somehow this is kind of a little bit more like a Wild West up here in terms of the degree to which rules and laws regulations are enforced, end quote. However, the thing about financial sinkholes, perfectly designed sinkholes by financial giants, is that unlike the drug addict whose addiction harms himself, the billionaire's addiction often does harm to society. There's an article, this is an article from Tony Robbins in the United States who says the financial industry needs to stop bullying its customers. I, I, I don't like the uh, I don't like the feeling, but the image of the most vulnerable, the child sitting on the stairs with a black eye, speaks words. Dr. Gabor Matei is a world-leading expert on addiction from his experience in his medical practice in East Hastings Street, Vancouver. The research is absolutely clear, he says. The more inequality in society, the more hate, the more dysfunction, the more mental illness, the more physical illness. For Matei, the question is not why the addict, but why the pain? What if the shootings in America, the drug addicts shooting up in Canada are a reaction to social trauma, to inequality? We should be grateful that our most traumatized here do not turn against us violently like they do in other countries. I'm not saying it's not a problem, but we should be grateful. This is a headline which I'm seeing more of these days. The headline reads, Capitalism and Mental Illness. The story goes on to say, Mental health survey in 2009 found that almost half the U.S. population displayed symptoms of a mental disorder. Uh, one in three Americans struggled with anxiety. One in five suffered depression. I know that fear of financial insecurity is the number one cause of stress and anxiety in society today. This may be a giant financial sinkhole that we're not talking about. Audrey Scoot was the manager of the homeless shelter in Medicine Hat when she spoke to Southern Alberta Council in 2015. She said, and I quote, people are always saying, I never give homeless people money. They'll probably buy crack or booze with it. What did you think they were going to buy? Four-piece entertainment center with a nice rug and some throw pillows? 
If I was living in a box covered in my own urine, I'd likely use substances to escape my reality as well. So when these problems appear on our streets, and some in society are unable to find a way to survive, I'd ask you to tell me how could our most vulnerable people survive in a society where our strongest citizens have rigged rules and laws so that they do not even have to follow them? How much money could you make if you didn't have to follow the law? I worked 20 years in the top financial firms in Canada, and I can tell you it's rather easy to make a billion dollars a month under those conditions where we get to police ourselves. There are virtually no police by design who work to catch the highest dollar value crimes. I've got five minutes left. Man, time is flying. This is the Leopard City Police Department, the headquarters. They had a $40 million budget last year, and for that they responded to 33,000 calls. To give you a comparison, the Vancouver Integrated Market Enforcement Team, INET, the high value economic crimes, the crimes up there in uncontrolled airspace, they handled uh, 33 cases in Vancouver. There are five offices across the country, and they too had a budget, the last one I could find, of $40 million for the country. The, we're paying the same amount of police crime in Lethbridge than they're paying to police the upper levels of society for the entire country. Here's, a, here's an image where I've tried to hide this young lady's identity. Financial addictions that harm society. She's actually signed away, it's from a newspaper article, it's a public document. She's actually signed away the laws which allowed the judge's pension plan to be sold, investments which didn't meet our laws, allowed the city of Lethbridge to be sold, and hundreds of other exemptions that, that are on the books. For a salary of around $400,000, she did what she was told. And then she landed a promotion at a better job in the industry, and a salary closer to $600,000. I'm going to skip a little faster here. I believe, oh, let's see, sorry, can you spot the criminal here? Can you spot the street criminal in this image, the corporate criminal, and the layers of handmaids? Police have difficulty spotting corporate criminals. The street criminal is the one in red who is easily visible. The corporate criminal in white is less visible because corporations are a virtual, invisible person. An artificial, legally created entity which was granted all the rights of personhood in a strange case of railroad companies who didn't want to pay property taxes in 1886, 130 years ago. So 130 years later, we have these artificial persons, persons who cannot be handcuffed, they cannot be jailed, and whose owners are protected by limited liability laws, allowing them to get away with almost anything. They're further protected by the people in blue. These are the handmaidens. They're layers and layers of accountants who cook the books, lawyers who grant exemptions and write exemptions, regulators, politicians, all of whom serve as handmaidens who line up to share in billions of dollars of ill-gotten gains. These handmaids are the organized criminals in blue that we also refuse to talk about in our polite society. That's why I was, I couldn't figure out why I wanted to block this image, block and not shame this woman in public, and it's, it's considered impolite to point at someone who's healthy, wealthy, white-skinned, and prosperous and say that's a criminal. It's considered polite to point downwards at people who are dehumanized and marginalized like this. I think that's one of the secrets that speaks to a little bit of our human behavior. 
and I'm just about done. Two minutes. Oh, I can do this. I can do this, Annalise. I can do this. Now that I've outlined what I see as the giant social problem facing every person in this room, I hope you'll try, allow me to try to imagine a solution. The Nobel Prize, imagine if you can, something like the Nobel Prize Alfred Nobel did when he established the Nobel Prizes in his will in 1895, a year before they had started establishing corporations with personhood, invisible persons. Imagine establishing annual awards of $100,000 to pick a number out of the year, each to be given to truth tellers and whistleblowers working inside government, finance, or any organization where accountability is being buried and where society pays the price. What if people were rewarded and uplifted and revered for speaking on behalf of the public's public interest rather than being punished and fired for telling the truth? I imagine a day when for the price of just two or three of our well-raked regulators, we could bring about an entirely new industry, and it's something I call the industry of accountability. I feel that accountability is the one element that has been lost in today's world. One Bill Gates, one Warren Buffett, one internet billionaire like Mark Zuckerberg or Amazon's Jeff Bezos could literally turn the tide on something meaningful for our entire society. If anyone knows how to share this concept with those who might wish to help, this is not a project that I alone can undertake. Accountability is just, in my opinion, the most valuable principle that I believe the world has lost, and I believe it needs to be restored and restored rapidly last life. Society doesn't die because we cannot arrest all the criminals at the bottom. Society dies because we cannot arrest any criminals at the top. Thank you for listening, ladies and gentlemen.